me to John chapter 12, Gospel of John chapter 12. I'm thankful to our lead pastor, Josh, who recently led us through that series in the beginning of Joshua, getting us ready for all that's ahead for us with the merge. Um, There's a lot going on. My name's Chase, and I've been one of the pastors here for three years now. That's crazy. Uh, And so, this is our second to last Sunday at Grace, and this is my last time to uh, preach and to lead you guys like this, at least in this um, three-year term, and so uh, I won't make this into a moment or anything, but needless to say, I am truly beyond honored and privileged and so grateful to you guys. And I love you. So uh, with that being said, uh, I have a very simple message for us tonight out of God's Word. And uh, it kind of revolves around this idea that all throughout the Bible, uh, especially in the Gospels, in some of the epistles, as we explore what it means to follow the way of Jesus, we find several what are called uh, paradoxes of God's kingdom. What do I mean by that? I mean uh, ways of life that at first glance are just upside down when compared to what you might expect. And so, for instance, things like to give is better than to receive. Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous. The first will be last and the last will be first. To become the greatest, you must become the least. When we are weak, then we are strong. To have treasure, you must give it away. We are exalted when we're humble, and on and on and on we could go. Now, if you and I really live according to these paradoxes, we will be alien to the world around us. I mean, this will just lead you to live in ways that friends and family who do not have the mind of Christ will disapprove of. These ways of life will seem undesirable, imprudent, inefficient, even unintelligent to the world around us. And it's funny, you know, Jesus is the most admired, revered, ideal example of a human person in history, recognized by Christians and non-Christians alike. The whole world looks up to Jesus, and yet when you start talking about actually living the way he lived... Like according to these these paradoxes, you get some weird looks. You get told to chill out, play it a little more safely, maybe have a backup plan. Some of you know what that's like. Living hope. Let's not chill out in pursuing Jesus. Can we just stop and pray right here? Just open yourself to God. Pray with me. Jesus, let us be a kind of people who there is nothing you cannot ask of us. 
Our cars are yours, our houses are yours, our families, our, our bank accounts. You are wise, you are good. You are on your throne. Don't let us try to take your place. We love you. We need you. And I pray that you'd open us to your word right now. I pray that you would um, help us to receive what you have for us tonight. Our very hearts and minds are yours, not just those external things. So we look to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, tonight I, w- I want us to explore the most sweeping and extreme example of one of these paradoxes. In a way, this one kind of encompasses all the rest of them into one. But before we dig into that, let me give you some context for the scripture we'll be looking at. So we're in uh, roughly the middle of the book, chapter 12, which is a big turning point in John's gospel. The whole first half was about Jesus' ministry, and the whole second half is about his last few days in Jerusalem, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Now, all throughout the first half of the book, up to this point, Jesus has been making some extraordinary claims about himself, about the kingdom of God, and he's been doing lots of uh, signs, as John calls them. Specifically, John uses that word. And these signs accompany and demonstrate and substantiate those claims. But, along the way, Jesus has also made quite a few enemies. And many of the religious elites are against him. And uh, they finally get pushed over the edge in the previous chapter when he raises Lazarus from the dead. That is just the straw that breaks the camel's back. And from that point forward, the chief priests and the Pharisees start officially making plans to put him to death. They put out these public orders that say, Hey, if anyone sees Jesus, you need to let us know so we can arrest him. Now, because of this, Jesus hides out for a few days. But the news of him raising Lazarus from the dead is just spreading like wildfire. And he did that sign in Bethany, which is just a mile and a half, two miles outside of Jerusalem. And this is at the time of Passover, so Jerusalem is where Jews from all over are gathering together to to celebrate the feast. And naturally, they're wondering, is Jesus going to show himself? Is he going to come to Jerusalem for Passover? And despite the public, known threats on his life... Jesus makes what we have come to call the triumphal entry on the donkey into Jerusalem. And there's the whole world of irony in there. That's like a sermon in itself. Um, But he's essentially walking into the plan of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And so we pick up the story right after that in verse 17. If you don't have a paper Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. We're going to go analog tonight. So, uh, okay, verse 17. Follow with me. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, and there it's talking about uh, the crowd that met him as he came into Jerusalem on the donkey. Uh, So the reason why that crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's the sign. Uh, So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now let's stop there for a moment and take this in together. So when it talks about Greeks, it's referring more to just Gentiles in general rather than only to people from Greece. And these Gentiles are apparently worshipers and followers of Yahweh. They've come to uh, Jerusalem to worship alongside the Jews at Passover. And they say, uh, well, they've probably heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. So they come and they're asking this question. You know, we want to meet with Jesus. We want to see this guy. We want to hear what he has to say. And the Pharisees picked up on this as well. Remember in verse 19, they said, look, the world has gone after him. Not just the Jews, everybody. And something about this signals to Jesus, the time has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The time is now right for the Holy Spirit to come and for the message of my life, death, and resurrection to be sent out to all nations. Now, obviously, what has to happen first in order for that message to be shared? He has to suffer and die. That's what he's facing. Yet, he calls it his hour to be glorified. What? What does that mean? (laughs) Does Jesus know what the word glory means? This one knows. A person's glory is their honor or beauty or significance. And so to glorify someone is to recognize and appreciate and reveal their honor and significance. Is to delight in their beauty and goodness. Now, the world around us today has narratives about what it means to have glory, right? Narratives about what makes a person honorable or beautiful or significant. It could be uh, notoriety, wealth, a body that we deem attractive and enviable, certain kinds of relationships, certain possessions that act as status symbols, a higher standard of living. You know, a lot of it has to do with ease and comfort. So, so if you don't have to work very hard in life, all of your needs and wants are met in abundance. That's seen as really glorious. You may or, not, you may, or may not uh, buy into any of those examples, but you have your own personal narrative about what it would mean to be glorified. What might that be? And how does it shape the way you live, the things you go after? Does it match up with Jesus? See, here we have our Lord saying that the hour of his death is his hour to be glorified. How can he say that? That's so upside down. That's, not, that's the opposite of glory. It's not the kind of glory our world would even recognize. So by what principle is he living? And, and viewing the world that would make him think like that. Here comes the paradox. Verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves their life loses it. And whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Wow. Okay, so he begins by using this seed analogy. Nobody holds on to a seed like it's the real point. Nobody uh, prizes and brags about and takes pictures of and enjoys their seeds, right? They enjoy their garden. They live off of their crops. The seeds are cast away. They're buried and die. They're planted, in other words. And it's only then that they can do and be and become all that they were truly meant for. Seeds were meant to give and spread life. If you try to hold on to the seed, you know, like keep it in your pocket, carry it around, it ends up shriveling and becoming good for nothing. It remains only a single seed, like the verse says. Nothing will come of it. It will not be a blessing of provision or beauty to anyone or anything. But, if you let it fall to the ground, in Jesus' words... Then it becomes a fruitful, growing plant. And he uses the example of grain, which is a staple crop, right? And so this isn't just like eye candy, landscaping kind of plants. This is sustenance for a whole bunch of people. This is what people live by. So what's the application? What's Jesus' point? Jesus' life was a seed. Your life is a seed. My life is a seed. You can hold on to it. You can let self-importance master you and drive your decisions and the outcome of your life. You can orient your time and goals and resources and energy around your own preferences or lifestyle or ambitions You can prioritize yourself, your plans, your desires over God, over others. And if you or I live that way, Jesus says you will actually not get what you're looking for. It's counterintuitive. By seeking to establish yourself, you will actually crumble. By looking to enjoy your own personal version of whatever glory looks like for you, you will actually become poor and empty Fruitless. Living to bless yourself is not the way to blessing. You will let your own self down because you learn when you live for yourself that you are not a very deep or enduring source of satisfaction and peace. You were made for much more. When you hold on to your life like that, you actually shrivel from the inside out. You remain only a single seed, like it says. Everyone misses out on the life you were meant to give to the world. If the seed is held on to, the grain doesn't grow. People go hungry. If greed and self-preservation rule your life, other people get trampled. The poor get disregarded. God is not enjoyed and loved like he was meant to be in your life. This is not a private affair. We cannot live for ourselves at no cost to the people around us, brothers and sisters. That's the story of anyone who holds on to their life while they live. 
Will that be your story? Is that our story? Does that characterize how you live, how I live? Jesus is inviting us out of it. He's inviting you out of it. Because, on the other hand, you can let yourself fall to the ground and die, like he says. You cannot cherish your life so dearly, but let it go. You can make life with your Father the center of gravity in your world, not yourself. You can count others as more significant than yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others, like it says in Philippians. You can let it matter little to you whether or not you are completely and comfortably taken care of and instead spend your resources and time in the service of other people's well-being. You, you can forget about yourself and let preoccupations with what others think of you or uh, thoughts about your own image or whatever fall by the wayside instead of control you. You can live... Purely and truly not to serve yourself, but to serve God and your neighbor. You can organize your days and your years around that. In other words, you can plant your life. You can, like a seed, you can sow it in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. You can invest in the interests of others. If the seed falls to the ground, if it falls out of your hand, out of your possession and control, and falls to the ground, then it dies in some sense. It's buried. You're not trying to preserve it. The seed dies to you. You die to you, to yourself. And Jesus says, if it dies, it bears much fruit. It becomes a source of nourishment and life and sustenance for others. It does not remain only a single seed, but instead becomes a heart-sown blessing for people and turns into a means by which other seeds are sown and planted. It becomes what God made it to be, which is like Himself, life-giving, Like I said, living to bless yourself is not the way to blessing. Living to make other people blessed in God is the way to blessing. So he introduces the paradox with this word picture of a dying seed and a life-giving seed. But then in verse 25, he just states the principle very plainly. Let's look at it. Whoever loves their life loses it. And whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now let's just all agree that this is the complete reverse of how we have been trained by the world to act and think and speak and believe. We have been conditioned to live in the perfectly opposite direction from this. And so it goes against everything that seems so natural and just self-evidently true to us, right? Because look, by default, we are afraid of loss. We're afraid of death. And so we you know, go about making provisions and plans and trying to prioritize ourselves and just hold on to whatever we can get. But only someone who knows 
that they are really unchangeably rich can give everything away. Only someone who knows they will never die can lay down their life for other people instead of trying to hold on to it. He makes this comparison between loving and hating, losing and keeping. You know, we tend to think if I love my life, myself, if I serve it, if I give all my attention to it, if my life is my focus and priority, if it's what is most valuable to me, if my interests are what dictate the way I spend time and money or dictate the way I conduct myself in relationships, if my thoughts and motives revolve around me, then I am keeping my life, right? I firmly possess it. I'm guarding it. It's in the palm of my hand. I am enjoying all that is best for me. And Jesus says, no, no, no. What you're actually doing is ensuring that you will lose the life you are treasuring so much forever. That is not the way to abundant eternal life. You are smothering your soul with a deadly kind of self-love. You're exalting yourself. And God, eternal life himself, opposes the proud, opposes those who exalt themselves. There's no future in that. Now, again, on the other hand, he says... Whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And the question I'm sure that jumps into all of our minds is, what does he mean by hate, right? Well, whatever it means, it can't go against what Jesus called the second great commandment, which is to love your neighbor, what? What? As yourself, that's right. So, so if we don't properly love ourselves, then we can't hope to love other people. See, we can't get too caught up in the exact wording of things when it gets a little tricky like this if the important principle is just so clear. It's just a stylistic hallmark of John to use these comparisons of opposing ideas. So, uh, like light and darkness, spirit and flesh, uh, you know, life, death, lose, keep, and in this case, love and hate. So remember that hating your life in this world, as it says, corresponds to the seed that falls into the ground and dies. It's just a different way of basically saying the same thing we've already explored. And look, if there's any uncertainty about what this hate thing looks like or um, you know, how we actually practice that, all we have to do is look at the perfect example. Jesus both loved himself and hated his life. These two things are not opposed to one another. He gave of himself like no other. He lived to be with his father, to speak his father's words, to do his father's works. He never sought any kind of accumulation for himself. Think about that. He didn't care about his own image or position. None of that was ever a driving factor for him in the way he made decisions. In fact, he purposefully laid those things aside. But you know what else? He also didn't drive himself into the ground. 
He loved himself by getting up before sunrise to be with his father. He took care of himself by withdrawing from the crowds at crucial moments to seek solitude. He got alone with his friends to pray together. He readied himself by fasting for 40 days before the start of his public ministry. He loved himself. And he hated his life in the sense that is meant by this text. And this whole time I've been uh, applying the text pretty generally, extracting some principles, that kind of thing. But let's not forget that what Jesus is facing at this moment in John 12 is the imminence of his actual death. Right? He's saying this to his disciples who, tradition tells us, were actually martyred. And our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution at this moment, I'm sure, cling to these verses in ways that we in this room will likely never know. This is the reason Jesus could go to the cross. Because the joy that was set before him was not the enjoyment or preservation of his own earthly life. It was doing the will of his father and becoming a blessing to all nations. To Patrick and Jess and Chris. Did you know becoming a blessing to other people will cost you? We can't do this for free, brothers and sisters. The grace that Jesus offers us is free. But it cost him everything. The very thing that is so life-changing and amazing about Jesus is his death in our place. That he offered his life. So if we're not willing to offer our lives, then we're not willing to embody the essence of Christ-likeness. If we want to become like Jesus, it will necessarily mean some kind of Suffering in the place of others so that they can receive blessing. We go without so that our neighbor can go with. We sow so that our neighbor can reap. I just don't see how our lives can become a vivid picture of Jesus' actual life without this. I don't see how our lives can be reminiscent of Jesus to others in any other way. Like it says in 2 Corinthians, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Listen, Jesus did not love his life such that other things, like his father's will or the interests of other people, got sacrificed for them. No, He loved his father and other people such that he got sacrificed for them. And this is our hope. Look, look, you can't live this kind of life on your own. We have all sought to keep our lives, to love them, and therefore lose them forever. According to this, we will all remain only a single seed. But... There is one who let his life fall to the ground and die in our place. His death bears the fruit of eternal life for us. That's what we're participating in. Is a redemption. We're living this out out of a redemption that's already been won for us. 
Jesus was, was buried like a seed and has now arisen as our tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, like it says in Revelation. And so we run to Him. We trust in Him. We make Him our life. And if our amazing Savior gave His life for me, if He didn't spare His own Son but gave Him up for me, how in the world can I withhold even the best of myself from Him or from other people? I, I, not to earn or get anything, but just to know Him. Just to become more like Him. To love Him. I want my life to bear fruit and become a source of blessing for others just like Jesus is for me. I want to follow in his footsteps like this. And that is exactly the invitation he gives in verse 26. Listen. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Yes, Lord, to serve the one who served the cause of my redemption unto death. There's nothing we want more than to Serve and bless the one who came to forgive and renew us. The invitation is open. If anyone serves me, he says, what do we do? He must follow me. Oh. Do you remember where he's headed? He's in Jerusalem. Headed to the cross. And he says, follow me there. Where my servant, where I am, there will my servant be also. Where was Jesus in his life? He was with the sinners, the sick, the poor, the marginalized. He was with his disciples. He was with his father. And he was on the cross. And we, as his followers, have got to be where he was. We have got to be with the poor. We have got to be with other disciples, with each other. And helping those who aren't yet disciples become disciples. We have got to get alone with our Father. And we have got to be on the cross so to speak, laying down our lives, our advantages, our resources for the good of other people in loving obedience to our Father. What else could it mean for us to look like Jesus? And there are countless big and small ways that we can sow our lives like this every single day. This is a mindset, a lifestyle we adopt that underlies Everything. And he's so direct about it. You know, where I am, there will my servant be also. Can you imagine a servant of a king who was just never with the king? Can such a thing exist? (laughs) Or what about a rabbi, or I'm sorry, a disciple who was just never around his rabbi? I mean, if he's not with his rabbi where he is, learning from him, following him around, then he's, he's probably not that rabbi's disciple, right? That's just what it means to be a disciple. Our rabbi, 
let his life fall like a seed to the ground and die every day. Not just on Calvary. He said, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whose life has been more fruitful than Jesus's in history? We were not made to be content in our own little world revolving around us. When we live that way, we shrivel and die. We were made to be the image of God, a replica of Jesus, a spring of life for all of creation, just like he is. Don't you want to be like him? Think of who he is. Think of how he loved you. Think of how he uh, paid a price for you to become all his and to be free from this self-love that leads to death. This passage, this is it. Unless the seed of your life falls to the ground and dies, it will remain only a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We need to recover a sense of the fact that loss is gain for us. Right? We lose our grip on on our own lives and everything that makes up our life. And we gain the life of Jesus. How did he live? He spent his life. He didn't save it. He lost his life. He didn't keep it, try to keep track of it. He hated his life. He didn't love it and prioritize it and revolve around it. He died and was resurrected. And he says, follow me. Be with me where I am. Become just like me. Live my life. Die like me. Give your life utterly to your Father and live at His disposal and like me be raised from the dead. There can be no resurrection without death. There can be, we can't have and spread new life without the old one coming to an end. But like I said earlier, instinctually, we are afraid of death, aren't we? It it represents Uh, the loss of everything that we've known to be precious. But if you've already died, died with Christ, died to yourself, if your attachments to your own life have already been cut, then the very worst the enemy can do to you has already been done. He's got nothing he can pull on you. His weapon has been knocked out of his hand. And so the scripture sort of mockingly says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Do you see the freedom God is giving us in this? And yet, still, Jesus saves the best for last. Let's look at the the last half of verse 26 and then we'll close. He says, if anyone serves me, this is crazy. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. What? This is the really surprising paradox. God will honor you and me. He says, if you serve him. All the narratives you've heard about servanthood being undesirable and lowly are lies. Don't believe them. 
the most joyful, wise, worry-free, God-honoring person in history was a servant unto death. God says, if you serve me, I'll make you into something so glorious, I will honor you. The greatest compliment of love God can pay us is to invite us to become like Jesus. To say he'll make us like Jesus, like himself. He loves you so much. He wants to share his glory, his likeness with you. What has the Trinity been doing for all eternity? Loving one another, honoring one another. He wants to bring us into that, to make us like him, the most joyful, life-giving, praiseworthy, humble person there is. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you want in on this, I urge you to decide tonight whom you will serve. Whether it's the one who says he'll honor you and raise you from the dead, the one whose love for you led him to give his life for you so that you could be here responding by giving your life to him, or whether it's yourself. So in just a minute, we're going to transition to our time of response. Uh, We've heard God speaking to us through the songs, through our interactions with one another, through the sharing of his word. And now... What are each of us going to say and do in response to him? We've got a couple of different ways of doing that here at Living Hope. You can stand and sing. We're going to play a couple of more songs, worship through music. If you'd like to just get on your face before God, just be with him. You can come and kneel at these steps and pray. Our, our tithing station is over here where we give the financial gifts God has given to us in love and obedience back to him. Uh, There's also the prayer request cards. You can write out a prayer request. There's a team that prays for those every week. Just put it in the bowl. Uh, One of our other pastors, Taylor, is going to be here serving communion. And let me explain how this works. You do not have to be a member here to receive communion. You just have to want what Jesus is offering to you. And so you're going to step up to Taylor. You're going to tear off a piece of bread. And he'll say, the body of Christ broken for you. And then you'll dip it in the juice and he'll say the blood of Christ poured out for you. And then you eat it. And there's significance in the fact that we take this symbol of Jesus' life-giving death into ourselves. On the inside, it's, it, it's food. It nourishes us. It strengthens us. It gives life. It sustains us. And so tonight as we receive communion, let's remember this day just days before Jesus was going to get arrested and suffer and die for our sins, when he spoke these words, so that we could take on his life, eternal life. So if you'd like to receive Jesus as all that he wants to be for you, and make him the king of your life once and for all tonight, then have that dialogue with him. Express those things to him over the course of these next few minutes. I'll be playing drums, but afterwards, come grab me. Tell me what's going on. Let's pray together. Grab someone around you. Tell them what's going on. Pray with them. If you just like prayer in general, grab a brother or sister around you. Tell them what's going on. Pray together. Let's do this thing. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the response begins here, but it doesn't end here. This is life for us. 
And this is the, the means by which God will spread his life through us to this whole city. So y'all stand up. I'll pray for us. Jesus, there's truly none like you. There have been plenty of gods and ideologies throughout history, belief systems, idols, whatever, that have found their glory in domination and power. But you, Lord, how amazing is it that your glory is seen in, and revealed in giving up all power, in serving, and in humbling yourself to the point of death for our sins. Your kindness, your saving love, leads us to turn away from sin, from ourselves, and to you. You have us, Father. We are yours. How could we live as anything but yours in response to who you are and what you've done? Just come and dethrone pride in our lives right now, Jesus. Let us say with Paul, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Show us by your spirit how this teaching carries us into the merge with Sherwood, into everything that lies before us as individuals. God, make living hope a source of grace and truth to the world around us, just like Jesus is for us. Let our glory be seen and experienced in our death to sin and to ourselves, just like Jesus was. We ask you to bear much fruit from our lives as we live to enjoy you and to tell of you, to become just like you. God, assure every person in here of how complete they are in you so that they're free from preoccupations about themselves. Assure every person in here of how rich they are in Christ so that they're free to give everything away. Assure us as a people that death no longer has any grip on us so that we're free to lay down our lives in loving service to you and to our neighbor. Set us free tonight. And have your way among us now. Pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The table is open. You can come when the Holy Spirit leads.